Act as if what you do makes a difference. It does. William James. Warning. The following podcast contains mature content. Listener discretion is advised. Hello, and welcome to the jury room, where we dissect some of the most heinous, some of the most unthinkable, and some of the most monstrous crimes to ever scar the earth. From cannibalistic serial killers to decades-old unsolved mysteries, these stories are sinister enough to keep you up at night. On January 2nd, 1972, it was a frigid winter day in Chicago, Illinois. 15-year-old Timothy McCoy stopped for a layover in Chicago on his way home to Glenwood, Iowa. After visiting friends for Christmas vacation, 29-year-old John Wayne Gacy, who had spotted McCoy while driving by, pulled up at the Greyhound bus terminal in his car and offered the teenager a place to stay for the night. It took a little coaxing to get McCoy who probably wasn't keen on sleeping on a bench in the terminal, into the vehicle. They drove back to Gacy's house on 8213 West Summerdale Avenue. What happened during the night is unclear, but Gacy claimed he awoke the next morning to McCoy standing in his bedroom threshold holding a knife. Gacy barreled towards McCoy. A struggle ensued. Gacy wrestled the butcher knife out of McCoy's hand and stabbed the boy in the chest repeatedly until he was dead. In the kitchen, Gacy found a carton of eggs and a slab of bacon on the counter. The boy had been making him breakfast and must have walked back to the bedroom to wake him. Gacy reported he experienced intense sexual pleasure while stabbing McCoy to death. This awakened a sleeping monster within him. He later said, That's when I realized that death was the ultimate thrill. The need to kill for sexual gratification became insatiable for John Wayne Gacy, as he'd spend the next six years killing at least 33 young men and boys and disposing of their bodies in the crawlspace beneath his house. Was this accidental killing the catalyst for creating one of the most sadistic and horrific serial killers in American history? Like a shark who tastes human blood? Or was John Wayne Gacy predisposed to commit these atrocities? Some might argue the answer to both of these questions is yes. Born in Chicago, Illinois on March 17, 1942, John Wayne Gacy was the second of three children to his mother and father, Marion and John. Gacy was born with a heart condition that kept him from being an active kid, and his sister Karen said years later, John was the main target of their father's abuse during his alcoholic tirades. John Sr. would go into the family basement, get blind drunk, and emerge mean and aggressive, looking for a fight. Gacy said his father became a different person when he drank, 
and that though he was a good provider and a hard worker, he often hit all of his children because John wasn't athletic and his mother doted on him. His father often belittled him for being effeminate, calling him a sissy and a queer. When Gacy was seven or eight years old, he was caught sexually touching a little girl and his father beat him for it. Not long after, a family friend who also happened to be a contractor began sexually abusing Gacy. His sister Karen later confirmed this. Fed up with the abuse coming from all fronts, John Wayne Gacy left home at the age of 20 years old in 1962 and went to find work in Las Vegas, Nevada. He landed a job as an attendant in Palm Mortuary and began to explore his more morbid fascinations. Allegedly, Gacy, who was sleeping on a cot behind the embalming room, experimented lying with dead male bodies on the tables and in coffins. He may have even fondled and defiled the corpse. Gacy denied all of this in a 1992 interview with FBI profiler Robert Ressler. After only three months, Gacy left the mortuary and went back to Chicago, where he enrolled in a business college. He realized he had greater aspirations in life. He wanted to be revered, respected, and admired. Perhaps if he became a successful businessman, he might receive his father's approval. After graduating, he started as a management trainee at a shoe store, where he met his first wife, Marilyn Myers, in 1964. They married in September of 1964 and moved to Waterloo, Iowa to be closer to her parents. Marilyn's father owned a chain of Kentucky Fried Chicken stores and offered Gacy a management position with an excellent starting salary to help them while the young couple started their family. Marilyn gave birth to a son and a daughter within three years of moving to Iowa. In Waterloo, Gacy joined the local chapter of the Junior Chamber of Commerce, also known as the Jaycees an all-male business league for men between 18 and 40. The Jaycees allowed John to spread his wings. He realized he had a talent for associating with others. He was able to meet and network with a variety of people, especially when it came to recruiting, which helped him rise high within the organization. There also seemed to be a sexual undercurrent to the Jaycees. It's believed Gacy had many of his early sexual experiences with other members within this organization. Gacy said in interviews that he increased membership of the local Jaycees from 100 to over 400 members by showing stag films or pornographic films. John's sister Karen described a spouse swapping situation she witnessed after a JC event with him and his wife in the mid-60s. John put his wife in the car with a different JC member, and he went home with that man's wife. 
Karen wondered if John's behavior while living in Waterloo wasn't a precursor to what he did later in life. Within months of the birth of his daughter in 1967, John Wayne Gacy lured Donald Voorhees, the 15-year-old son of a fellow JC member and U.S. representative, to his home on the promise of showing him a pornographic film. Gacy then loaded him up with alcohol and sexually assaulted him. Apparently, getting a taste for something he liked, Gacy did this to several teenage boys throughout the fall of 1967 and winter of 1968. By March, Donald Voorhees confided to his father that what had happened, and Donald Voorhees Sr. went to the Waterloo Police with went to the Waterloo police who charged Gacy with sodomy. Gacy, who was on the verge of becoming president of the Iowa Jaycees, publicly decreed the allegations, calling it a political maneuver to keep him out of the position. Because of Gacy's reputation and good standing within the community, many people stood by him for over a year until it came out that he hired another teenager to attack Donald in a park to beat and intimidate him into dropping the charges. In 1968, Gacy pled guilty to one count of sodomy and the judge sentenced him to 10 years in prison. As he was carted away to serve his sentence at Anamosa State Prison, his wife Marilyn filed for divorce and received sole custody of their two children. After his conviction, Gacy never laid eyes on or communicated with his first wife or two young children again. The men's reformatory at Anamosa had roughly 630 inmates when John Wayne Gacy went through the intake. Ray Cornell, a fellow inmate with Gacy, became his friend when Gacy recruited him for the prison chapter of the Jaycees. John received a national award for his performance in recruiting for the prison chapter of the Jaycees. While in prison, Gacy never told anyone he was in for sodomy. Cornell said in an interview that if people knew that's what you were in prison for, you would leave jail in a box. Gacy told other prisoners he got arrested and convicted for peddling pornographic films and quickly became a favorite among the inmates and prison guards alike. Gacy became head cook at Anamosa, a prime and unlikely position for such a new inmate. He also orchestrated the building of a mini golf course that still remains to this day. A model prisoner based on his good behavior, John Wayne Gacy was paroled 18 months into his sentence. He left Iowa immediately and went back to Chicago to move in with his mother. Back in those days, they didn't track the movements of paroled prisoners. So Gacy was able to leave his past behind and start over with a completely new life in Chicago. He could spin whatever story he liked, and nobody would be the wiser. John moved into his mother's condo in 1970. His father had died the year before, 
and she was all alone. Lonely and invalid, Marion Gacy welcomed her son back with open arms. Because of his work as head cook in prison, John finagled his new skills into a job at a local Chicago Italian restaurant. He made decent money that helped him get back onto his feet. After leaving the restaurant in the afternoon, John worked odd jobs as a contractor, including painting and remodeling. After about a year as a chef, John decided he wanted to have more freedom. He went into business for himself and started PDM Contractors. He also convinced his mother to sell her condo. Together, they bought a new home in Des Plaines, Illinois, on Somerdale Avenue. For a convicted sex offender, John Wayne Gacy did remarkably well for himself in his new life in Des Plaines. By 1972, he had rekindled a relationship with his sister Karen's high school friend Carol and the two were married in a quiet, intimate ceremony. John adopted her two daughters from a previous relationship and moved the three of them into his house on Somerdale. Soon after, Marion Gacy decided it was time for her to get her own place. So John got his mother an apartment nearby on Elston Avenue where he did maintenance work. Karen Gacy claims that when she asked his mother why she left, she would only say that things aren't getting along. Nothing more. What secrets was Mother Gacy hiding from her son? Gacy's life in Des Plaines followed a similar pattern as his pre-sodomy life in Waterloo. He was active in local politics. Gacy was the Democratic precinct leader for Norwood Park Township, a.k.a. he was an elected liaison between the Democratic Party and the voters in his district. Six months before his arrest in 1978, Gacy organized a springtime parade where he'd been photographed standing next to the First Lady of the United States, Rosalind Carter. Gacy had received secret service clearance, indicated by the button on his lapel in the now infamous photograph. And now for a quick break. All right, just wanted to take a moment out to thank today's sponsor. Today's sponsor of this episode is Podcorn. Podcorn is a marketplace connecting podcasters to amazing podcast sponsorship opportunities, such as host red ads, interview segments, topical discussions, and much, much more. They even do reviews. You can do giveaways. There's a lot of different opportunities on there. With Podcorn, there is no middleman. Podcasters of all sizes can browse and choose opportunities right on the platform, set their own rates, and collaborate with brands directly without any exclusivities. You never give up any of your rights to your podcast, and Podcorn is here to support you at every step and ensure you are protected and compensated for the work that you do for brands. The Marketplace mission is to give podcasters transparency, creative freedom, and full control 
of how and when they monetize. Make sure you click the link in my show notes to sign up for Podcorn and start browsing sponsorship opportunities. Again, thanks for Podcorn for sponsoring this episode. Make sure you guys go check them out. Monetize your content. Get your name out there with brands. That's podcorn.com forward slash podcasters. Go visit the marketplace and monetize your content. Now, back to the show. The parties Gacy threw for his neighbors were legendary. He loved to socialize, and people described him as generous and great with children. People knew him for his clown impersonations. He dressed up as Pogo the Clown and volunteered at children's hospitals and charity events. Gacy said that clowning helped him relax. He was a good provider for his family and had an excellent reputation as a businessman. He remodeled several pharmacies in the area through his contracting business. He regularly hired high school aged boys to work for him because he said he could train them better than more experienced workers who were set in their ways. The young men were always up for it because Gacy paid them so well. At the time, his penchant for hiring teenage boys didn't raise any red flags within his community. Though, behind the scenes, Gacy kept popping up on the police radar when multiple boys went missing in Chicago throughout the 70s. Gacy had had several brushes with Chicago police in the mid-1970s, all involving sexual assault of young men and boys. By 1975, Gacy was regularly cruising the streets looking for young boys. So much so that homeless teens and sex workers began recognizing him. Detectives staked out Gacy's house and watched as numerous teenagers came and left the premises. They questioned many of them, but no one reported anything inappropriate. When a nine-year-old boy went missing in January of 1976, police again looked for Gacy. They surveilled his Des Plaines house despite being outside Chicago PD jurisdiction, but they didn't gather enough evidence to build a case. They soon lost interest and moved on. In 1976, Gacy and his second wife, Carol, divorced, and he had the house to himself. The frequency with which complaints were being lodged against Gacy were increasing rapidly. In March 1977, Gacy again showed up on Chicago PD radar for allegedly abducting a 27-year-old man named Jeff Rignall from a city street, taking him back to his Des Plaines home and brutally raping and beating him. Amazingly, once he finished, Gacy put Rignall back in his car and dumped him in a city park alive. Rignall went to the police, but you have to remember, this was the 1970s. They assumed that gay people were all hypersexual and couldn't be raped. So, they did very little to investigate Rignall's complaint. Rignall took matters into his own hands 
and staked out the street on which he was abducted until he spotted the car of the man who had viciously attacked him. He gave the license plate numbers to the police. Can you guess who the vehicle belonged to? Police arrested Gacy, but let him out on a minuscule bond. According to Rignall's partner, who was interviewed for the 2021 Peacock documentary on Gacy, the prosecutor decided not to pursue the charges because, quote, it was just another buttfuck. In December 1977, a 19-year-old male went to the police and told them that he had been abducted by Gacy, then sexually attacked. He claimed Gacy formed him to perform sex acts on him at gunpoint. Police did file a report and even arrested Gacy, but Gacy admitted it. He said yes, they did have violent sex, but the guy was into it. They were playing a sex slave game. Police let Gacy go shortly after, and the assistant district attorney declined to prosecute after the complainant failed to show up in court. One year later, Robert Piast disappeared after meeting with Gacy. On a cold winter night in early December 1978, 15-year-old Robert Piast was finishing his shift at the Nissan Pharmacy in Des Plaines, Illinois. Robert's mother idled in the station wagon outside the store at 9 p.m., waiting for her son to get off of work so she could drive him home. At the counter, his co-worker and friend, 17-year-old Kim Byers, was still wearing Robert's blue parka to shield herself from blasts of Chicago cold air every time the front door opens. She shimmied out of it and handed it back to the shaggy-haired boy. The two said goodbye, and Rob donned his coat as he ran out the front to tell his mom he would only be a few more minutes. He needed to talk to a man about a job. The job prospect was a good one. A construction gig with the company that had just remodeled the Nissan Pharmacy, PDM Contractors. The pay was higher than at Nissan, and he'd get a workout. Perfect for a sophomore in high school. Elizabeth Piast watched her son walk around the back of the pharmacy, and she waited and waited and waited. After a few minutes, a nagging worry started to creep up to the back of her neck. After an hour, she succumbed to full-on panic. Robert was a good, responsible boy a loving son, and an honor student. He was not one to take off without telling her. The glimpse of his blue coat vanishing around the corner was the last she would ever see of him. Elizabeth Pius rushed to her home and picked up her husband, Rob's two siblings, and the family's two German shepherds. The Pius search party scoured the streets around Nissan Pharmacy, looking for any sign of Rob. By 11.15 p.m., they had still found nothing. So, they made the gut-wrenching decision to go to the police. Robert Piast was officially reported missing at 11.29 on December 11, 1987, just two hours after he had gone missing. 
Who had Robert gone to meet before he disappeared? Both Elizabeth Pius and Rob's friend Kim Byers gave the police the same name. John Gacy. Pius was different from the other victims. For one, his upper middle class mother reported him missing. Officers saw him as a good, hardworking American boy who had a family who loved him. They didn't assume he ran away as they often did when other teenagers vanished without a trace. They started searching for Piast immediately, which made all the difference in this case. Since the last two people to put eyes on Robert Piast both claimed he was going to meet Gacy when he disappeared, police wanted to talk to him. They requested he come in the next day but Gacy failed to show up at the police station until 3 a.m. on December 13th. By then, Chief Detective Lieutenant Joe Konziak had obtained a search warrant and asked him for the keys to his home. Gacy reluctantly handed over his keys. When police arrived, the air was frigid. Snow clouds accumulated overhead. The atmosphere was dark and bleak inside the house. They found a class ring that did not belong to Gacy. Shackles, handcuffs, and a film roll receipt from Nissan Pharmacy with Kim Byers' name on it. Kim confirmed that she had put that receipt in Rob's jacket pocket while wearing it the night he disappeared. It was crucial evidence that put Robert Pius inside the Gacy home. The police traced the high school class ring they had found at Gacy's house to a young man named John Sizik, who had disappeared two years prior. Sizik worked for Gacy as a contractor, and when his family reported him missing, police questioned Gacy, who told them that he had ran away. Police had accepted Gacy's explanation and told the Sizzik family that John would probably come home when he was ready. The runaway story became less convincing when police found that one of Gacy's employees, a young man named Michael Rossi, was driving Sizzik's car. He claimed Gacy had sold it to him. Gacy claimed Sizzik sold it to him before he skipped town. While under surveillance, Gacy got chummy with the police. Gacy started inviting detectives to eat with him at local restaurants. On a few occasions, Gacy invited detectives into his home to use the bathroom. This arrogance led to his downfall. On December 19th, Eight days after the disappearance of Robert Peist, Gacy invited his surveilling detectives in for breakfast. When one of them went to use the restroom, the heat in the house kicked on, and out through the vents wafted the unmistakable smell of death. Detectives pointed this out to Gacy, who then threw them out of his house and called his attorneys. Soon, 
They filed a $750,000 civil suit against the Des Plaines PD, alleging harassment and illegal searches. But it's hard to make a case for that when you've been inviting police into your home to share your breakfast table. Things unraveled quickly for Gacy after that. By December 21st, his behavior became incredibly erratic. Police followed Gacy to a gas station and watched him get out of his car with a bag of marijuana in his hand to give it to the clerk. From there, Gacy raced to the home of his employee, David Cram. Oddly, Cram came out of the house and went to the police car to ask if it was all right for him to drive Gacy's car. The surveilling officers, unsure what was going on, said sure, and they continued to follow the two men as they drove to an Italian restaurant. Gacy hopped out of the car and ran into the restaurant building, and Cram made a beeline for the police car. He told them Gacy just confessed that he had killed at least 30 people. So, police immediately arrested Gacy for the marijuana possession to hold him. Faced with another search warrant, Gacy told his interrogators that he had killed a man, identified years later as 15-year-old Timothy McCoy, in self-defense and buried him beneath his garage but denied having anything to do with Robert Pius's disappearance. He took police into his garage and marked the spot where the body was buried with a can of spray paint. Police also found a trap door leading to the crawlspace in Gacy's home. The smell of death was everywhere. Police charged Gacy with one count of homicide to hold him while they sorted out the situation. Teams of forensic scientists and police descended upon the small West Somerdale Avenue home and started excavating. Within hours, they found bones from three separate bodies. The case was about to explode. What they unearthed in the crawlspace beneath Gacy's home would make this one of the most significant mass murder cases in Chicago history. The more they dug, the more bones they collected. Lime had eaten away the flesh from the bodies, but the bones were still well intact. Press swarmed the neighborhood. At the end of each day, Police carried between three and four bags out of the house and loaded them into the coroner's van as photographers manically snapped away. And now, for a quick break. Comic book stores, sports card shops, the exciting atmospheres of being a geek kid in the 90s. I'm Micah, a 36-year-old girl dad, hubby, and geek. And on the Tavern Geek Podcast, my friends and I ramble on about geek culture and NBA basketball while enjoying crafted adult beverages. So, kick back and enjoy us, the Tavern Geeks. Now, back to the show. Gacy was a good neighbor. People living nearby repeated this to the press over and over in the days that followed. He threw great parties, 
Past employees, the ones who survived, told police Gacy was fun and easygoing. He loved children, he had been married twice, and seemed financially successful. While in custody, however, Gacy was rapidly confessing to dozens of brutal rapes and murders. As soon as police told Gacy they had found three bodies beneath his home, Gacy started singing like a canary. The first thing he told them, he detailed his murder of 15-year-old Robert Piest. The night of December 11th, John Wayne Gacy waited behind the Nissan pharmacy. Around 9 p.m., a tall, skinny kid with long hair and bell-bottomed pants came to his passenger side window. Gacy told the kid to get in since it was cold outside. So Robert slid into the passenger seat to discuss the job. Steady work at $5 an hour, that was nearly double what Pius was making at the pharmacy. He enthusiastically accepted. Then, John fumbled around his car, looking for the paperwork. Silly him. Gacy must have forgotten it back at his house. He asked Robert if he wouldn't mind driving with him back to his house to get the correct papers. It was only a few blocks away. Rob was hesitant. His mom was waiting out front. Don't worry, Gacy told him. We won't be long. Once in the living room of his home, John Wayne Gacy asked Robert if he wanted to see a trick. He took a pair of handcuffs and cuffed himself behind his back. He struggled a bit and then held the cuffs up with a lazy finger. Rob was intrigued. How did you do that? He asked. Put them on and I'll show you, Gacy told him. Rob put the cuffs on struggled for a minute then admitted defeat i can't get out what's the trick gacy held up a set of small silver keys the trick is to have the key gacy described what happened next in gruesome detail he used his favorite rope trick he tied a rope around pius's neck that had a bar attached that he wedged between his victim's neck and shoulder. Each time he rotated the bar, the rope tightened, restricting Pius's airflow. As he did this, he performed oral sex on the boy, then brutally raped him. By the third turn of the stick, Pius was strangled to death. Gacy placed Pius's body in an attic until police called to question him. Then he put the body in his trunk and dumped him in the Des Plaines River. Once he finished the story, Gacy allegedly drew a map detailing where each body is buried under his house and gave police the names of six of his victims. I say allegedly because Gacy later denied confessing to anything. He also didn't explicitly say I murdered him. He told police that by day he was John Gacy, but by night he was Jack during his interrogation. Gacy referred to Jack in the third person, as in Jack may have sodomized Pius. 
and Jack drew the map of the crawlspace. At first, police were perplexed by Gacy's behavior. Then they realized he was building an insanity defense. Gacy declined to have the confessions taped, which left them wide open for speculation. He knew he was caught, so he tried to throw as much confusion into the mix as possible so he would have a fighting chance to beat the charges in court. But that's not what happened. When it was all said and done, police unearthed the bodies of 29 victims from beneath Gacy's home. They found an additional four, including Robert Piest. In the Des Plaines River, all of his victims were men and boys, most likely between the ages of 14 and 21. It became clear after employees of Gacy told police that several of their co-workers have disappeared over the years that Gacy used his contractor business to lure young boys to his home and to rape and kill them. Police found a red flashing light in Gacy's black Oldsmobile and believed he might have posed as a police officer to get kids into his car. Gacy told them he would cruise the streets at night as Jack Henley, who was later identified as a real-life police officer. Then, there's Gacy's career as a clown. Ever wonder why people are so terrified of clowns nowadays? Gacy played a massive part in helping to develop that national phobia. He belonged to the Jolly Joker Clown Club in Chicago. The media gave him the loving nickname, Killer Clown. After numerous photos of Gacy in full clown regalia surfaced. Police had the how behind the crimes and the disposal of bodies, but they needed the why. Was Gacy insane? That's the defense upon which Gacy's attorneys relied. During the trial, which ran from February 6th to March 12th, 1980, the defense called dozens of witnesses. From Gacy's kindly old neighbor who testified that Gacy was a brilliant man, a generous host, and a dear friend. To a former employee who said Gacy attacked him with a hammer. Gacy's mother and sister testified on his behalf, detailing his abusive childhood, the abusive alcoholic father who beat and humiliated him, and his early illness, such as fainting spells and epilepsy. They even called one of Gacy's surviving victims, Jeffrey Rignall, to testify on behalf of the defense because Jeffrey repeatedly said that for someone to do what Gacy did to him, he would have to be crazy. On the stand, Rignall recounted how Gacy pulled up beside him and offered him a joint. Rignall got in, and before he knew what happened, Gacy had chloroformed him. Gacy drove the unconscious man back to his house, where he beat and raped him. Rignall also said he remembered a third person being there, opening the door for accomplices and future conspiracy theories. Rignall vomited on the stand during his testimony, 
and the court had to shut down for a few minutes while they cleaned and sanitized the room before he could resume. He concluded by telling the jury Gacy dumped his battered and broken body in a heap at the front of a statue on the north side of Chicago. The jury heard from Michael Rossi and David Cram, two longtime Gacy employees who testified to digging holes and spreading lime in the crawl space, but both denied knowing they were digging graves. Allegedly, Gacy always made some excuse up about a plumbing project. Gacy implicated both men in, in the murders during his interrogation, but they both lawyered up and agreed to testify for the prosecution. They both testified that Gacy confessed to them on December 21st, 1978, to killing about 30 people. Prosecutors easily battled down the insanity defense because Gacy was so well adjusted throughout the rest of his life. He owned and operated a successful business, belonged to various social clubs, and maintained a presence in local politics. They discredited defense experts who threw out diagnoses like paranoid schizophrenia, psychopathic personality, and psychosis. In regards to the question whether or not Gacy knew what he was doing, the prosecution asked. Did he not know what he was doing all 33 times? Per the Chicago Tribune, March 13, 1980. The five-week trial ended Wednesday with a dramatic flourish when Kunkel, the chief prosecutor in his final argument, flung the photographs of the 22 identified victims into the hatch to the crawlspace, which had been placed on the courtroom floor about six feet from the jury box. Don't show sympathy. Don't show pity, Kunkel thundered. Show justice. Show the same sympathy and pity this man showed when he took those lives and put them there. Kunkel then stunned the hushed courtroom when he threw the pictures into the hatch and they resounded with a thud. You didn't have the power to change the fact, the prosecutor said, but you can control the future of this villain. You can do justice for the people of the state of Illinois. If you allow this evil man to walk the earth, then God help us all. It took the jury less than two hours to convict John Wayne Gacy on all 33 counts of murder, despite not knowing the names of all the victims. Gacy was sentenced to death. 14 more years and numerous denied appeals passed before the sentence was carried out. On May 10th, 1994, John Wayne Gacy was executed by lethal injection as crowds of justice seekers chanted for his death outside the prison walls. It took 18 minutes for him to die because the machine malfunctioned. To this day, we don't know the names of all of John Wayne Gacy's victims, nor do we know if his death toll stopped at 33. DNA has helped identify additional victims 
as recently as 2017. But six young men still lie in their graves without names on their headstones. Thanks for listening. And remember, you never know what's lurking in the shadows, lingering around the corner, walking past your house at night. So watch out, stay safe, and keep listening. This has been The Jury Room. As always, I hope you guys enjoyed this episode. Definitely a doozy of one. John Wayne Gacy was a sick human being. But I'd like to take a moment of silence for all of his victims. Once again, thanks for listening. I appreciate your guys' support. I have two announcements, so if you've made it this far, then I'm sure you're going to be excited about these. Are you enjoying the true crime content from me? Well, I'm excited to announce that I'm working. I'm currently working on a YouTube channel where there will be more true crime plus a little surprise. So stay tuned for that. And I also want to announce... I would like to give four winners worldwide $25 each. Now, if you have PayPal, Venmo, buy me a coffee, however, but I would like to give four listeners $25. Now, in order to be entered for this, you need to send me an email, juryroompodcast at gmail.com, and you need to share this with your friends and family. Make sure you have them follow subscribe, like, share, just get the jury room podcast out there. Don't forget, you can always leave a review on Apple podcast, pod chaser and audible. That's free, but please enter for your chance to win $25. Now send me an email, jury room podcast at gmail.com. Stay safe. And thanks for listening.